All right, we're going to read an entire book this morning. Turn to 2 John, if you would. 2 John, all 13 verses of 2 John. The goal is to try to give just a basic introduction this morning before um, delving into it more deeply in the coming weeks. So I'll tell you in advance, for a, a book that only has 13 verses, this morning is going to be long for an introduction, but it's going to be fairly short for a sermon. Um, hopefully you won't complain if I don't keep you long and... Uh, I'll try to get back that time at points in the future. <laughs> Second John, starting at verse 1, we'll read the whole thing. The elder, unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. For the truth's sake, which dwells in us, and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you. Mercy and peace from God the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in the truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you've heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, Receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that bids him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face that, your, that our joy may be full. The children of thy elect sister greet thee. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you this morning with the knowledge that we need you at every moment. Father, we're, we're thankful and we ask you to always remind us that we have you every moment. We ask for the guiding influence of your Holy Spirit to, to move us to understand the message of your word. Father, I ask that you would give me the physical strength and the spiritual insight to speak compassionately, truthfully, and with clarity, that I might lay down the burden of your word before your people and that you would give them the, the courage and the desire and the ability to pick it up. 
Ask, Lord, that your word would go forth and accomplish your purpose. And may the love and truth of Jesus be declared so that you would be glorified through him. Please forgive me of my failures. Amen. Earlier this month, the annual survey named the American Worldview Inventory was released with some shocking results of their study. The results in question, which were specifically a survey of individuals who hold some title of pastor in a Christian church, suggests that even among the leadership of Christianity, very few hold a biblical worldview in regard to questions of family, human nature, sin, the value of life, salvation, morality, or the scripture. The study determined that just over one-third, specifically 37% of people with the word pastor in their title hold to a biblical worldview. Those pastors range from 41% of senior or lead pastors who hold a biblical worldview. That's the high end. The shocking part is that 12% of children's or youth pastors held a biblical worldview. So basically, if you lined up nine youth pastors, only one of the nine has a scriptural view of any of those issues. In fact, the study went on to determine that, you know, that as, as they did this study, well, if they don't believe and behave like biblical Christians, what, what do they believe? And the answer was that a vast majority hold a view which would be labeled as syncretism. Syncretism is essentially an amalgamation of several different systems of beliefs molded into an easy-to-accept package. All right, we'll, we'll take some secular humanism, we'll, we'll mingle in a little bit of works-based religion, some other worldly philosophy, and, and that's going to complement our biblical Christianity in a way that it, it's going to make it culturally acceptable. In essence, a majority of individuals in Christian leadership hold to their own self-made Frankenstein's monster religion made up of pieces and parts of several different worldviews that seem socially acceptable, but can't be identified as Christian in a biblical sense. George Barna, the director of the research, concluded, quote, it's just further evidence that the culture is influencing the American church more than Christian churches are influencing the culture. Second John is, is just a little book that addresses this. It's so small. De- depending on how you figure it, Second John is the, is the smallest book in the Bible. It's, it's one of these three single chapter books leading up to the book of Revelation. I think Third John is actually the shortest the way I figure it. Second John has fewer verses. Third John has fewer words. So you can decide how you think which one's the shortest. But either way, the, the next two letters are very small. And if the, the book of Romans, think of it this way. If the book of Romans is a letter, Second John is a postcard, right? It, it's gonna fit. It, literally, even in the first century, it would fit on a single piece of papyrus. 
But despite its pint-sized packaging, adherence to the message of 2 John would clear up many of the issues that we have with competing worldviews today. If you'll just allow me to try to define the problem that 2 John addresses for a moment, and then I'll show you briefly how the letter that John writes just meets this problem head on. We live in a world in which it is increasingly difficult to maintain a proper perspective on truth and love. We see love and truth as if they are in competition against one another, as if they are at odds. A, a couple of examples will serve to show what I mean. I'm, I'm sure most of you have heard of Westboro Baptist Church. They were in the news more maybe a, a decade ago, but um, they've been quieter recently, but Westboro Baptist Church from Topeka, Kansas, decided that they needed to place all of their emphasis on preaching hatred toward sin in particular and homosexuality in particular. They traveled far and wide to shout through amplified megaphones at gay pride parades. They even took up, the, they're the group that took to holding protest signs at the funerals of dead American soldiers that said, thank God for dead soldiers, God hates fags, God hates America. They stand as an example of those who claim to uphold truth, but do it at the expense of love. Now, God does declare homosexuality a sin, as he does many other types of sin. And in fact, the scriptures tells us that God hates sin and those sinners who will not turn from their sin. The biblical message is a message of judgment, yet it is also the biblical message that there is good news that God saves sinners. And so when Westboro Baptist holds up their signs and spews this hate-filled rage, they are doing it at the expense of any expression of love whatsoever. Let me just say, it is a strange kind of individual who, having heard the gospel and been released from the, the, the slave shackles of sin, thinks that it's the most reasonable expression of their new faith to turn back to the slave, slave pen and spew hatred at those that they used to be chained with. The Apostle Paul calls us to speak the truth in love. Their hate-filled message essentially says you are destined to an eternity in hell if you don't repent. And that message is true, but they lack any love when they say it with a tone of voice that essentially says, and I'm going to be glad to see it happen. That is a lack of love which is to be avoided. However, we can also easily see the other extreme nowadays. We can, we can take that same issue on which Westboro is in one ditch and we can cross the road and see the other ditch has plenty of inhabitants there. There are several websites now dedicated to helping people find gay affirming churches to attend. A couple of examples of the, the invitation to the gospel of a couple of churches that are I'm not going to identify them. I'm just going to say they're very close to us. One assures visitors that they'll be comfortable 
by saying, we believe God is still speaking and calling us to love one another in new and deeper ways, regardless of gender identity, race, age, culture, ethnic background, sexual orientation, economic circumstances, family configuration, or different ability. You're welcome here. Our faith community is strengthened by your presence. Now, give me a second. The second, even more progressive church doesn't just say that everyone is welcome, it says in that inclusiveness of what the word of God calls sin is exactly what they are striving for. They say we strive for equality across the spectrums of gender, LGBTQIA+, I'm not even sure what all of those stand for, and the ways in which they intersect. Guests at that church, even first-time guests, are welcome to get up and give what they call a soapbox sermon to the congregation. These sermons, they say, quote, gives us a chance to hear the hearts of our friends and learn to see God in the world more deeply from a different perspective. Some will turn scripture upside down. Some will cry. Some will swear. Some will push us to be brave and uncomfortable. Some will remind us that the people we disagree with love the same God we love. What they're basically saying is that your feelings will be safe here and you won't get challenged by anybody daring to say that you're wrong. You're certainly not going to be expected to learn from scripture how to repent of your sin and trust Jesus for salvation and be conformed to him. No, absolutely not because we're not going to learn anything from the Bible. If we're going to learn anything at all, it's that you're already okay just like you are. What we really need to do is learn from you because I'm okay, you're okay, let's learn from each other. Now, just like we could be tempted to point to to Westboro on one hand and say "There there is a kind of truth in what Westboro is saying, I think that we could also be tempted to point at some of those inclusive churches and say, well, there's, there's a kind of love in what they're doing. But the Apostle John in this letter is going to smash both of those notions. Like I know this is a, a long way of introducing it, but it's gonna get us to the heart of the problem. If we applied the message of 2 John to those extremes, what we'll find is that in one ditch, you have got a a message of truth being held and delivered at the expense of any kind of love. And since that truth is devoid of love, it is not truth. But on the other ditch, you've got an expression of love being communicated without truth. And since that love is devoid of truth, it's not really love. Now this issue of homosexuality and sin is just one example, one way to point out this idea. We could apply it to multiple examples across uh, numerous areas and subjects. The gospel, the Bible doctrine, church discipline, family relationship, work ethics, right? We could make a long list of examples. It is comprehensive to every facet of life. Truth and love must be practiced together. Warren Wearsby said it like this. He, he would often say, love without truth is hypocrisy. Truth without love is brutality. 
And I think our examples prove him right, right? That, that all-embracing so-called love that is devoid of truth is nothing but hypocrisy. And on the other hand, those who, who have that hate-filled so-called truth that Westboro preaches, utterly devoid of love, is nothing but an excuse for brutality. As John writes this letter, I want you to see the way he weaves the words truth and love with each other in a way that they are entirely inseparable. If you think you're acting or speaking truth, but that truth is without a display of love, it certainly is not the truth of Christ. And if you think that you're acting or speaking in love, but your love isn't based firmly in truth, then it is not the love of Christ. And if you don't know right away whether you accept that as being right or not, I would just ask you to ask yourself two questions. Was there ever a moment where Jesus Christ was unloving? Was there ever a moment where Jesus Christ was untruthful? Or was he always both? I think you'll agree he lived and spoke with unequaled love and uncompromising truth at every moment. We go wrong when we allow ourselves to think of truth and love as if they're, they're at odds with each other, and they're not. We think, well, we're trying to find the, the right balance between truth and love. Like, like truth and love are toddlers on opposite ends of a teeter-totter and we, we want to be careful that they're balanced just right so neither one of them ends up with a bruised bottom. This is not a, really a question of balance. And while I'm, I'm sure there's going to be some point in my life where I use that word balance in this regard again, it's not a question of balance. It's not a question of, well, too much love and not enough truth or too much truth and not enough love. John doesn't call for balance He's clear in his demand that both truth and love must be embraced in their entirety at all times. Love without truth is not love. Truth without love is not truth. They can only go together. They must go together. Otherwise, the absence of one destroys the other. Now, let's just look at the first half of this letter. Just read through it and see how John weaves truth and love together. Just as a side note, this reminds me of looking through Brother Charles Pittman's Bible after he died. He marked a T at the top of the page, every page where he found the word or some version of the word truth, right? And so sometimes there'd be several T's at the top of the page. Second John was filled with them. Start at verse one. The elder unto the elect lady and their children, whom I love in The truth, not truth devoid of love or love devoid of truth, but together. And not only I, but also all they that have known the truth for the truth's sake, which dwells in us and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly that I found your children walking in truth, as we've received a commandment from the Father. And now I beseech you, lady, not as though I wrote you a new commandment unto you, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. 
And this is love that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that as you've heard from the beginning, you shall walk in it. For many deceivers, a deceiver is someone who draws people away from truth, are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now he's going to move on from there to give some very practical commands in regard to how to express love and truth for those who reject the truth. Down specifically in verses 10 and 11, in reality, almost all of the letter of 2 John reiterates what John has taught in his first letter. The only material that's really any kind of new or, or, or supplemental teaching is found in verses 10 and 11, where he says, look, don't lend aid to those who reject the truth of the gospel of Jesus. So truth and love is basically the theme of 2 John. Now, to, to round out our introduction, I want to do at the end what I usually do first in an introduction. We need to talk about who wrote this and why they wrote it and who they wrote to. The author is the elder. Even though this letter is called 2 John, you'll see nowhere in this letter does he identify himself. The identity of the letter writer usually comes at the beginning of the letter. And in this case, the first words of the letter is that the elder is the one who's writing. Technically, the letter is anonymous. The same thing is true for 3 John, by the way. In reality, the kind of touching sentiment found here makes it anything but anonymous. The recipient of this letter, whoever received this letter understood who the elder was. The word elder is the Greek word presbyteros, which, which emphasizes his position and his personal relationship with the recipients of the letter. The, that word can be used simply to mean someone who is older in age, and the Apostle John, after all, was the last surviving apostle. Tradition tells us that he not only outlived all the other apostles, he was the only one to escape martyrdom. John, instead of being martyred, ended up banished to the Isle of Patmos, which is how we're reading Revelation in the mornings. So this word elder can mean an older man, which John was, or it can be utilized in a Christian context for a a pastor or teacher within the church, which John also was. It's evident he has a personal relationship with the recipient or recipients of this letter. And as a result of his age or position, or most likely both, he possessed the kind of authority and moral standing necessary to give guidance on how to best obey Christ and his word. In a way, even though this is anonymous, that title elder is more important than a proper name would have been. The timing of the letter, setting a date for these letters is not easy, but the best evidence we have suggests that John wrote the Gospel of John first sometime between uh, 85 and 90 AD. Then he wrote these letters sometime in the next five years, 90 to 95. All three of the letters were written. And we don't know with any certainty what the order was. 
and then wrote Revelation somewhere around 95 to 97 AD while he was banished to the island of Patmos. That makes all five of the books that John wrote, his Gospels, his three letters, and Revelation, the last New Testament documents to be recorded. After John was done writing, the New Testament was completed. Now, to put in perspective his age, if Jesus was crucified, as as I think, somewhere around 30 AD, then it's another 55 to 60 years before John writes his gospel, and then several more years before he gets to writing this letter. So very likely, as John is referring to himself as the elder, he is in his mid-80s when he writes this letter and probably pushing 90 by the time he writes Revelation. The recipient to whom was this letter written? Uh, here's, here's where I just have to eat some crow. I'm going to wash it down with water. Verse 1 says, It is to the elect lady and her children. And back when we did this kind of introduction for First John, I said confidently and foolishly, that I contend that this is written to a church and its members. It's funny how a little bit more study can make you a little less confident. I'm not so certain now. There are a few possibilities, and there's at least one possibility that I feel comfortable dismissing right away. Third John, the next letter, is written to a man, and we know his name. His name is Gaius. And there are commentators who say that we should read 2 John the same way, so that instead of this saying the elect lady, this is actually a proper name in Greek, electa. I mean, just in case anybody's looking for a baby name for a girl that's a good Sovereign Grace Baptist name, electa, certainly better than Jezebel. I'm pretty comfortable saying this woman was not named Electa. The real question is whether this is written to a a real person, a real lady and her children, or whether it is written to, in a way to identify a church and its members. So let me just give you some thoughts for both sides of that, and then we'll, we'll finish up. If it is to a church and its members, then the church is being called the elect lady and the the children are church members. That's not at all an unusual way of writing for early Christians. In in 1 Peter 5.13, Peter writes this way. He actually writes in Greek, she who is at Babylon salutes you. And we're so certain there that he actually is talking about a church that way. And the translators actually insert the word church in there. In verse 6 of this letter, John, you can look at verse 6, he uses a plural pronoun, ye, right? You all. He does that twice in verse 6. You can see in verse 8, look to yourselves. So actually starting at verse 6 and through the rest of the letter, all of those personal pronouns are second person plural, right? You all, it's to a group. Verse 13 says, the children of your elect sister greet you, which would, if it's, this is about a church and its members, would naturally mean that John is writing this letter to another church and extending greetings from the church 
that he is at as an elder. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is this is written to a specific woman. The, the most natural way of reading the text, if we were just to read this and not look anywhere else, the most natural way to have read this is that it is written to some well-known lady who has some position of respect. She, it's, it's been suggested that she is perhaps a woman in the church who has cared for orphans and still has some in her home. And that would make sense of why John says he's writing to her and her children. While he also says, I've been glad to see some of your children out walking in the truth, living out truth. In verse 10, when John says, if someone comes essentially teaching false doctrine, don't accept him into your house. Right? That's a common use of the word house or home. And so a notable woman who was seeking to be hospitable would be here getting guidance for how to use her home. I said earlier, the only really new material is in verses 10 and 11, that instruction on hospitality or, or denying hospitality to false teachers. So it's quite possible that if John wrote 1 John first, with all of its teaching that we've talked about, about truth and love and warning about false teachers. And this woman who had a close relationship with John wrote to ask him for clarity. You know, her, her letter could have said something like, well, you know, I, I bring in traveling Christians and missionaries into my home. Should I not help them? And John responds very briefly, essentially like a postcard, to say, no. If they're denying the truth of Christ, no, you shouldn't help them. And we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. But suffice it to say on the recipient of the letter, I am less confident about who the recipient of the letter is than I used to be. If pressed, I still kind of lean toward this is to a church and its members. But that might just be because I'm stubborn about changing my mind. What I am certain about with this letter, whether it's written to an individual or whether it's written to an assembly, it is teaching the same basic message. You must display and declare the truth in love because love and truth are inseparable. You have to love the truth. You have to live the truth. You have to love others who love the truth. In a practical sense, the demand here is for all of those who know the truth of Christ's gospel to live out the truth of Christ's gospel by following his commandments, which is another word we'll see in this letter several times. That's going to result in living out a biblical worldview that's going to be decidedly countercultural, perhaps even uncomfortably countercultural for us. While truth and love are both Virtues displaying either one of those virtues by themselves is a pretense. Without love, any declaration of truth is powerless. And without truth, any display of love is meaningless. For us to live out our lives with any kind of genuine integrity, it is going to require us to follow the example of our Lord Jesus who displayed undeniable love and uncompromising truth at every 
moment. Second John is going to insist we have to do the same, the same virtues which Christ taught us through his words that we will love his truth so that the truth of Christ is heard in our words and the love of Christ is seen in our actions because missing either one of those destroys the other.